Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's guide is with Ella McPherson, sociologist and co-director of the Cambridge Centre for Governance and Human Rights, and she's going to be telling us about human rights in the digital age. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, gift subscriptions to the LRB for yourself or somebody else start from just $19.99. Find our best offers and a reading list to accompany today's episode at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Maybe we could just start with a basic question about how digital technology has impacted on the practice of reporting human rights abuses and trying to hold abusers to account? Sure. So human rights reporting, as I see it, is fundamentally actually a communication process where you're getting information in, processing the information, packaging it, and then communicating it out to try to influence states and other actors to change things, change the situation. So like with any of our communication processes, think about sort of how we communicate with our friends and relatives, digital media have come in and made sort of big changes to this. So in terms of the gathering of human rights information, suddenly with the rise of the smartphone, the rise of social media, the rise of things like WhatsApp, we have potentially access to just an exponentially greater amount of human rights information than we ever did before. Before, you used to have human rights fact finders would either be, you know, reaching out to people on the ground, their networks, or they had to go there themselves and have a trip. And so you had a very kind of limited scope of what was gatherable. And now because anyone potentially could report on a human rights violation if they have a phone in their pocket, and they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time where a violation happens in front of them. So information gathering has changed dramatically. And then you have information analysis, which is where human rights information is picked up and processed, right? So it's turned into evidence. And there's a couple of things that happen here, but the most important thing is verification, which we all know in the fake news era is wildly important. Is, is this information actually something that we can back up and triangulate with other information to prove that it's true to the extent of our abilities? That's changed dramatically because technologies exist now to support this verification process through doing things like matching up images that an activist on the ground has sent in about a violation with Google Earth images, or Google Street View images to say, oh, actually, it is exactly where they said it was. So these kinds of things exist. But also the space of analysis has sort of cracked wide open. Again, it's not just experts doing this, professionals. Human rights organizations are experimenting with outsourcing part of this analysis and verification process to amateur groups around the world. Like we have one at Cambridge that works on this. Students who can help Amnesty International find information on Twitter about potential violations and then verify it. So that's changed dramatically. It's really opened up into a more kind of amateur expert collaboration. And then packaging that that information once it's been verified and determined to be evidence and putting it out there and trying to persuade people that's also changed dramatically because of all of the kind of bells and whistles that come with digital enhancement of information you can look for example at the work of forensic architecture at goldsmiths which is able to take citizen witness videos from facebook or twitter and cross-reference that with satellite images and then use architectural technologies to build up 3D images of bombings and create really compelling packages that make it very hard for anyone to argue against the fact that there was a particular bombing in a particular place. So all of this has changed really dramatically in, say, just four or five years. 
And that sounds like a pretty positive story. And actually, the thing it reminds me of is the kind of good news story about this technology at the beginning, when people were pretty optimistic about it, maybe less optimistic now. The digital revolution was going to be this revolution in exposing bad actors, allowing citizens information that they were denied before, letting them share it with people who really cared, getting the message out there. Is it that good news story? Is, is what's happened in the last five years the thing that, that we hoped would happen? Well, I think we have to look at it sort of on a case-by-case basis. I think we all had that optimism. I certainly did in this human rights space. And some of that remains. And the innovation is truly exciting. But at the same time, I think we've seen just in our own daily lives with how digital technology has come in and then kind of betrayed us through kind of different corporate and political actors. We have the same thing happening in the human rights space. And I think this exists on a couple of dimensions, at least. I mean, one thing I could mention is around digital risk and physical risk and security of people involved in this process and how I don't think we anticipated how precarious their lives would become having used digital technology to report human rights violations. And just to be clear, is that because obviously it's not just the people who are trying to do the exposing that have this technology, everyone has it. And once you place yourself in that space, you are much, much more easily identified yourself. Is that the the problem here? Your protection has gone. Yeah, so there is a, a sort of a time and a resource dimension to this. So I mean, with all of the optimism around new technology and its its ability to allow us to communicate with each other around institutions and to organize, and you know, we saw this, for example, in Egypt with activist organizations around protests. We saw this in Syria, where civilian witnesses were sending out videos on YouTube, the bombings, that this was suddenly a sense of we can actually just go direct to change. And the states were scrambling to catch up at this stage. I remember in 2012, 2013, looking at these activist videos coming out that the BBC was publishing, and then looking at the Syrian state government's news outlet website, which was looked so amateur in comparison with the civilian witness videos, which felt so real. I don't mean amateur, because actually the civilian witness videos were amateur. I mean, sort of looked so old basic school. and old school. Yeah, I think that the activists felt like they had this kind of early adopter advantage, and we're running with it and doing things with it. But the problem is that when you look at resources, that states just are like the absolute giants to the ants of the activists, right? And so they would just realize what was going on, and they're slow ships, so they took a bit of time to turn around and realize that they could also act in this space. But when they did, they came down with such tremendous force that the activists ended up being tremendously vulnerable because they'd already put things out there online. These things could be linked to their identity. They were not erasable, And so you not only had all these sort of apparent networks just on Facebook that were just visible instantly, but you also had these kind of horrible basic tactics of if you caught an activist with a phone, you could force them to unlock their phone and show you their contact list and show you their WhatsApp content and all of that stuff. And not to mention the more sophisticated things around spyware and malware and online deception and all of these tips and tricks that apparently states trade with each other. Right. There's this whole kind of conversation among states on how to surveil and intercept critical information. And when you say states, are we talking about their essentially their secret service arm? Or are we talking about at a more basic level that this is just what governments do? Are we talking about the, the, the <laughs> bit of the state that we tend not to think about? Or are we talking about this is just a pervasive yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't really know the answer as to who exactly is doing it, but I do know there's a huge market for this stuff. So you have corporations that market different sort of spyware technologies, which will have clients among lots of different states, all kinds of 
governments, right, who will buy this technology in order to be able to surveil. It's quite normal, which is a bit frightening. And is it a kind of arms race now? So what you describe is almost like there was a disadvantage for the activists in moving first because they left themselves exposed when the states finally woke up to it and marshaled their resources. Do the activists then adapt? I mean, who's winning at this point? Yeah. So the states, they take a long time to turn around. Yeah. They're slow, but they're heavy, and they've got a lot behind them. The activists are still more nimble in some way, are they? Um, Can they keep one step ahead? Yeah, I think this depends on resources among activists as well. There are definitely amazing digital innovators out there doing really creative things and very flexible, agile organizations that tend to be well-resourced. But the problem is that you have activists who may not have the digital literacy capacity because there's no training available at their organization, who get left really far behind. And you see a couple of different things happening in, in that space. One is that we definitely are seeing activists opting out of digital communication and saying, forget it, this is too risky because I don't know what the risk is. I can't predict what might happen if I communicate over this, where I know if I meet someone face-to-face in a place where there's no phones, you know, I pretty much know what's going to happen. But so, that's hugely limiting, then. Yeah. I mean, that then we're almost back to square one. Exactly. It's been reported that activists are centering themselves as well out of fears for all kinds of manifestations of risk. One is that they can be found and things can happen to them. But another is that they can be harassed online. The harassing online causes them, of course, to have sort of repercussions for their own feeling of safety. But also there's this worry that that is diminishing their reputation, their credibility as activists, which, of course, is a key asset for activists to get their work done through persuading and advocating. So that's really problematic. And can we just get a sense of where and how widespread this is? Are we talking about the experiences of people who are working in some of the most dangerous places in the world, like Syria? Or is this a much, much more pervasive issue that, as it were, states are routinely doing this, including maybe some states that we don't think of as particularly bad? You know, when you read the comprehensive reports that organizations like Frontline Defenders do on the state of human rights defenders in the world, this is seen as a major theme of, you know, a challenge and a threat for human rights defenders worldwide. So one version of this problem, which is the thing that makes it easier for activists, also can make it easier for the people who are trying to spy on the activists, is around anonymity. Because anonymity can be a very useful resource online. It allows people to conceal their identity. But also, it's as we've discovered, it's something that states can use too. You don't know who you're dealing with. How does that dynamic work? Does it help or hinder the attempt to expose human rights abuses to be anonymous? I think we had a lot of hope that anonymity and the, the way that one can report things without having to sort of physically be there would allow us to get more information. However, what that idea ran up against is actually our social understanding of how we establish what a fact is. And it turns out, at least in my research has shown, that we really want to connect facts with identity. We want to know about the source. We want to know about who they are and what their motivations were. In fact, that is considered to be one of the major aspects of verification when human rights fact finders go in and look at information is, where did this come from and why would this person be telling me this? So you have to know who the person is. So you have to know who the person is. So anonymity allows an investigation, say, to start but it wouldn't be a piece of anonymous information is very, very, very rarely, we see this in journalism too, very rarely going to be the information on which a story is reported. So it's useful in highlighting an issue and making people want to go in and investigate it, 
but that piece of information in itself isn't going to change things on the advocacy side because it, they need to establish who it was who said this. And we find this really problematic because what it does is it sort of silences around particular kinds of human rights violations. So they're ones for which it is much more risky or there's many more repercussions for reporting them. And Su- having your such as- so for example, if we look at sexual violence in say, institutions, if women are more likely to be the victims, it's a kind of um, violation where they don't necessarily want their name associated with the accusation because there are just repercussions, as we know, for women in society who make accusations of sexual violence. Then because anonymity doesn't always work in terms of getting traction for an investigation or getting traction for even belief and credibility in that story, you end up having almost the more vulnerable populations who are being subject to violations more likely to be silenced. It has certainly helped. It's opened up new channels of communication, but it runs up against our social understanding of how to produce knowledge and fact. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You mentioned earlier the issue of fake news around verification. So is there also a question here that one response that people who don't want this information to get out can make is not to try and block it, but to kind of drown it or, as it were, to swamp this space with maybe anonymous or fake or stories that it's not clear where the source is, but it just means there's so much noise that you can't detect the signal. Is that one of the ways that states respond? Yes, but even before that, without going to all the effort of making that kind of like flood of information, just saying, well, how do we know that's not fake news? That's fake news. That's a deep fake, you know? We see that happening where every single tool being used on the one side to try to establish a fact is also used to sort of break a fact down on the other side. So we have seen countervailing accusations of fake news, one against the other, state against the human rights organizations in this space. And so it all becomes quite muddy. Is there any tool that helps settle this? Has anything emerged that's a tiebreaker in the world where everyone says that everyone else is purveying fake news? I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is, you know, and this is where it's actually, for me, it's something quite old fashioned and also something that is that goes against our optimism about what technology could do, which is something around the credibility, the authority and the networks of existing actors. So at the end of the day, if a particular human rights organization says that, you know, well-known, well-established, well-respected organization says this happens, and here's our methodology for showing that it happened, that still holds a lot of weight. But in terms of the tools, the technological tools used to establish whether things are doctored or not, I mean, that is also a total arms race. Like you develop one to fake it, you develop one to unfake it. And that just goes on. How is it working on different platforms? So say on Twitter, is there a particular version of this that we see being played out on Twitter? Is is Twitter helpful or a hindrance for the kind of work that we're talking about here? So this is where I think it's important to say that there is 
what people speculate about in this space, and then there's what's actually going on on the ground with fact finders who are dealing with this information on a daily basis. And I think we are all very interested and drawn to the kind of cutting edge of the future of this, which is things like deep fakes and holograms and all, you know, all these kinds of manipulations that we haven't even thought about yet. But what's actually going on on the ground that fact finders that I speak to find that they're having to establish as sort of not true is something much more innocent, which is actually if someone is on the ground at a protest and they see some police violence and they put it on Twitter, they actually sort of know from how they consume Twitter that something with an image or a video attracts a lot more retweets and attention than just some text. And say they forgot to, you know, they were so shocked by what was happening, they didn't video it. Often people will sort of, with best of intentions, go and find something really similar, some other kind of content from like the day before or whatever, and they'll use that to illustrate what they said just happened. So it did actually happen. They just didn't video it. They used something else. And this kind of stuff is coming into human rights organizations who are then having to very, very, very carefully establish that this video actually isn't from this day. It's from the day before, which takes a lot of work. But this is the overwhelming preponderance of fakes that they find, which aren't really fakes, right? And they still have to really very carefully establish that, you know, we've shown that this video is from the previous day because any slip up by human rights fact finders in in terms of putting forth something that's not actually exactly verified is a huge ding to their reputation and their credibility. Yeah, that's one of the ways it's not a level playing field, right? If yeah. You, a mistake on the part of an oppressive state is kind of baked in. That's yes. what they do. Yeah. Uh, when amnesty screws up, it's really bad news. Yeah. Are the social media companies, the big corporations, helping at all? They're always talking about, so Twitter's often talking about providing tools to help its users discriminate true from fake and so yeah. on. Have they, have they actually... Because you know, they have an interest in this space and they're aware that their platforms are absolutely vital. Have they helped? The fact finders that I've sort of seen at work are using a sort of real mishmash of different tools, some of which they've developed themselves, some of which have been developed in journalism, to pull in this information. They're not necessarily using anything from the social media companies themselves. And in fact, I think the social media companies have been really slow to act in this space, which I don't necessarily see as a bad thing. Because to be honest, I don't want Twitter or Facebook telling me what is true and what is not true. You know, they're absolutely not equipped to do that, A. And B, the establishment of truth and how we figure out what is true varies person to person, country to country. So while one could say it's frustrating that there aren't more tools out there that sort of help us verify at a glance on these platforms. I also don't think that the platforms are necessarily the ones who should be doing it. But one of the ways where we have seen social media platforms try to wade into this space is around verifying users' identities, which is supposed to mean that if you have a blue tick by your name on Twitter, it, it means that Twitter has gone and checked you out and make sure that you know you are the person who you say you are. I found this really interesting and I sort of was trying to kind of look into how this worked. And if you go on Twitter's terms and conditions, there is this statement that says, you know, you you cannot do something to become verified. We are going to decide whether you should be verified or not. And who do we verify? It's well-known users in politics, you know, sports, business, etc. Right. So the kinds of users who can get verified, they're not exactly the kind of people who we think are being brought into this space to report on human rights violations. It's already well-established people. Because of that verification badge, you also kind of get these sort of hierarchies of who other people see as, you know, trusted and, and telling the truth. So human rights organizations or fact finders have told me that if some of the people on the ground don't have a tick next to their name, 
it is very hard for them to get traction with journalists because there are other people out there impersonating them. And so the journalist, because the journalist can't tell if this is the person from X human rights organization or one of their three or four or five impersonators, they will just leave it alone. It's too dangerous for them to wade into. So it's actually kind of, by mistake, Twitter has created a silencing mechanism in this space. Is it possible we're about to move into the, the next phase of this technology? So that there have been quite a lot of hopes around blockchain technology, the thing that underlies Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, that it could become a kind of record or a, a ledger where citizens can bypass big organizations in the same way people hope you can have money without states, where there is a possibility of a real kind of citizen activism where people can record for themselves in a totally reliable, trustworthy way what's happening to them. I mean, is it possible that the next stage of this is back to some more optimism where new technologies actually can give you a secure, reliable place to record the information that really matters? Not money, but actual facts about human experience. I think there's a lot of excitement around this. I mean, where we've seen blockchain come into the human rights space is much more around things related to delivery of resources and corporate supply chains and these kinds of things. There is a question about this, being able to record information and sort of keep it securely in a way that's sort of unaltered. I think here the issue is, and this is going back to that question about the old-fashioned benefits of institutions that we sort of momentarily forgot about and sort of wanted to forget about through the hopes for, you know, better power distribution, but that this information, we have to remember, it's, it's very flammable information. It's very dangerous information. And one of the things that having this information go through institutions does is the institutions are experts, actually, human rights institutions are experts in understanding security risks and future-proofing against the security risks. And so them holding information and verifying it and deciding how to release it to the public, while you could see that as a bottleneck on us being able to use human rights information for advocacy, actually is a major act of responsibility towards people on the ground and keeping them safe and keeping them safe in the future. I still think there's a huge role for information going through institutions, being processed and held by these institutions before it goes out into the public because of that long-standing expertise in this space. When you look ahead, do you think that there are good grounds for optimism here? We've kind of been through the euphoric phase. I have a feeling that we're now in the somewhat dystopian phase of this digital revolution where it's kind of all bad news. But it's always good news and bad news at the same time. And like you say, it's always an arms race in a way. Um, the hope that this was going to bring down authoritarian regimes, it was going to expose wrongdoers. The wrongdoers can use this technology too. But do you think if you look 10, 15 years ahead, there are good grounds for thinking that nonetheless, you know, the arc of history is towards justice? I think that the potential for technology in this space is very much on a case-by-case -case basis. So I won't get into the details of that here. But I think one way in which it is very beneficial is perhaps unexpected way, but it's a way that Amnesty has been innovating with a lot, which is widening the human rights project, creating ways to involve people in the whole human rights reporting process. That's not just getting information off the ground, because we've established this can be create risks and governments can surveil you and et cetera, et cetera. But actually, in the middle bit, in the kind of hidden engine part of the human rights information processing machine, where it's verified, where it's organized, you know, all of those sort of mundane informational tasks that have to happen for information to turn into evidence. Amnesty is creating ways where 
individuals can get involved in this. For example, they have a project called AltClick, which is where they have a sort of micro tasks around human rights information analysis. So for example, we're going to show you this huge database of reports on oil spills and we need you to help us analyzing these reports to look for patterns and to see if we can hold governments and corporations accountable for oil spills and it's way too much information than one of our analysts could do in a certain amount of time but if we get 10,000 of you from all around the world to be logging in and working on this which is what they what they did do then we can do it much much faster you guys are kind of verifying across each other. So if three or more of you say that this is something, then we can sort of take it as given that it is something. And not only that, they're using it to build a particular community of people who are interested in doing this kind of work and are talking to each other in forums and relating to each other and sort of are delighted to have the chance to be involved in a project that otherwise, a human rights project, that otherwise is quite closed off to the everyday person. So I think that is a real sign of directions in which the human rights space is safely being opened up by technology. And there are more concerned, decent citizens in the world than there are bad people. I mean, I like to I, think so. I think if you crowdsource this, the good guys should win. Well, I hope so. Do follow us at tppodcast underscore for links relevant to today's episode. The next guide is going to be with Matthew Taylor, and we are talking about deliberative democracy. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Big question to end on. Um, I'm just trying to think of some optimistic scenarios because I mean, I'm ten. I, yeah, I think I'm sort of sort of down in the kind of pessimistic ditches right now. But I will try to think of some. Um, our Christmas message <laughs> I do have one actually I do have one um, so um even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.